Well, good morning and welcome to Crosspoint. Uh, my name is Dave. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, our First Impressions team is going to be handing out the connection card booklets. And so just encourage those to go down the rows. And if you're new with us, fill out that gray section. Uh, a couple next steps, a couple encouragements to you. Uh, if there's something that we can be rejoicing with you about, something the Lord is doing in your life, an evidence of his grace or his work, write that at the bottom. We'd love to uh, just pray for you and pray with you and rejoice in the work the Lord is doing in you and through you. And then also community groups are starting up uh, this month. And so if you're not connected to a group, uh, fill that out or check that box and we'll follow up with you this week. Uh, a few Sundays ago, we shared about church planting in Manunk and Eric and Bree and their family being called out to that work. And one of the questions that we touched on that day was Eric's role on the elder team. I shared that Eric at some point in 2019, probably late spring, will be transitioning off the elder team. Um, one of our current elders then as well, Ron Peterson and his family are going to move to Michigan next summer. So in preparation for those transitions, we've been praying and discussing as an elder team about who the Lord would be calling to join in the work of shepherding and overseeing the Crosspoint flock. Godly men who meet the qualifications of elders talked about in 1 Timothy and Titus and who are actively already serving, leading, teaching, shepherding in the church. Men who love the, love the Lord, love His church and its people, and love those yet to be reached. And over the past several weeks, we have been having conversations with and asking Ben Martin and Joel Zare to consider the call of being elders here at Crosspoint. They and their wives and, their elder team, or, and, and the elder team, we collectively feel affirmed and in unity that the Lord is calling them to join in the work of shepherding and overseeing this local church. We are deeply encouraged by their way of life in Christ, how they're actively loving Jesus, people making disciples. They're faithful men who are committed to sound doctrine and desire to be used by the chief shepherd as under shepherds in his church. And so up there is the Zare family on the left and Ben's family on the right. And neither one of those are in Illinois, clearly. Um, and so that is from their summer vacations. No cornfield or beans right there. Um, so we're asking members of Crosspoint over the next couple weeks to join us in prayer in this area. Specifically with Ben and Joel, we're asking you to read through the qualifications of an elder, again laid out in 1 Timothy and Titus, and look through our elder brochure if needed on our website. Uh, back on June 17th, I preached on eldership, so you can listen to that message. There's a blog post out there as well. But So do those things as needed and desired. And then we're asking members to either uh, affirm them as elders or express concerns about what you might see a disconnect between their way of life in Christ and the qualifications laid out in Scripture. If you have affirmations or concerns, I encourage you to talk to a member of the existing elder team. So that's myself, Eric Johnson, uh, Brad Lehman, or Ron Peterson. We'd also encourage you to, uh, to, to speak affirmation to Ben and Joel. Like if you see, like, yeah, I can see God's call in your life in this area, then tell them that and tell them why you see that in them and to speak life into them in this season. Um, so then after a couple weeks, then uh, uh, if there's affirmation among the Crosspoint members, then we will pray for them and commission them as new elders on September 30th on that Sunday. If at that time Ben and Joel are added to the team, then Ron Peterson in preparation for their uh, 2019 transition out of the state will be stepping off the team. All right, so if you have any questions, let an elder know. Also, before we get into the message, I want to give you a brief 
financial update. Uh, we don't see the finances of a church as separate from the ministry and mission of the church. And so we give this update on Sunday mornings in the midst of a worship service because all of our lives are intended to be worshiped to the Lord. So this is not some separate thing that we do. This is all the things that we do. This is all of worship to the Lord. Our fiscal year runs from September to August every year. And so we just finished up one year, began a new year this month, and the Lord's been faithful to his church. And the Lord is continuing to stir up a growing spirit of generosity among the Lord's people, a growing spirit of wisdom among our ministry leaders. In the past year, so this is September 2017 to August of 2018, and these numbers are up there, our revenue was nearly $384,000. So that includes everything from weekly giving, a year-end gift to our building fund of $7,500 by household, uh, building rental fees of $500. That's all things coming into the church. Our expenses then over the past year were uh, $362,500. So by God's grace, the Lord provided more than what went out. So we're grateful. Last year's budget was anticipated to be at 378.4, which works out to be a weekly offering average, a target goal of $7,277. Like I said, we ended up not spending some dollars that we had anticipated spending over the past year. And then um, like, a, like a building campaign, we put, postponed that until the Lord would lead us to that. And so while some individual budgets went over, some came under, and in the end, we spent more than we received. Our weekly offering average over the past fiscal year ended up being $7,192. So two things about that. One is that it came under what we were hoping it would land at, at that 7277 mark. Two, though, is that last fall, 11 weeks into our fiscal year, our average was $6,204. That's about $1,000 below what we were anticipating it being. By God's grace and Him stirring up this generosity in His people of faithfulness in you, we saw that gap close significantly to the point of now providing more than we spent. God is faithful. Thank you for leaning into His ministry and His mission here at this local church. Thank you for how you and I are collectively, to, together corporately, we are saying yes to the Lord in the area of generosity. So then moving into the new fiscal year, we're anticipating a budget of $372,000. That's a decrease of about $5,000, but more reflective of our current offering average. A couple highlights from that. We're continuing to take 12% of our offerings each week and put that toward missions work. We're not taking anyone new on when it comes to missions work right now because we anticipate significant dollars uh, going toward a church planting effort and work in Minunk. We continue our support of Compassion International, Heartline, Heart House, Hegstrom's, one-time projects, and so forth. And then the second thing is we created a budget line where we, where we are starting to pay uh, for Pastor John to go back to school and earn his bachelor's, uh, his undergraduate work, and his master's of divinity. He started back this fall already, so he's already rolling in this. He's going to school online through Midwestern Baptist uh, Theological Seminary. He's taking about 12 credit hours every semester to be able to uh, be finished up in about four years. So pray for him and pray for their household because that is on top of husband, father, pastor, friend, other roles in his life. But we are excited as an elder team, as a finance team, as a church to be able to invest 
uh, into uh, John's development as both a Christ follower and as a shepherd. So we're thrilled about that opportunity. If you have any questions, let uh, myself or a member of the finance team know. That'd be uh, Aaron Householder, Matt Wiegand, Brandon Bresner, or Robin Honig. All right, let me pray, and then we'll get into the message. Uh, Father God, we are so grateful that, that numbers reveal your work. They reveal your faithfulness. They reveal your spirit. And so we're grateful that as we gather in a worship service, we just declare your goodness as we sang, as we open up your word, that we can also declare your goodness as we, as we look back in hindsight to say, thank you for providing for your local church. Thank you for calling us to the work of your kingdom. And so as we move forward in this year up ahead, we pray in faith that you would continue to provide over and above what we need as a local church. It's your church, your flock, your body, your family. And so as your family, we confess our dependency upon you and our trust in you and our faith in you. You're a good God, altogether good and gracious. So continue to not only provide, but equip us and empower us through your spirit and your word to go out and do kingdom work both here and outside these four walls. We trust you and we love you as your people. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. If you have a Bible with you, get to Jonah chapter 2, and we'll be there. We're, we're in a four-week series. Last week we were in Jonah 1. Here at, on September 30th, we begin a 10-week series through the book of Philippians, looking at the subject of joy. That's the overriding subject in the book of Philippians. And so uh, get to Jonah 2. If you need to use the table of contents, do that. There's no shame in that. There's actually just wisdom. So last week, uh, we began this four-week series called Get Up and Go. And in chapter 1, the Lord says to Jonah, get up and go to the city of Nineveh and preach. And Jonah is an Israelite prophet of God. Prophets speak on behalf of the Lord. They represent him to people. Nineveh is a capital city of the Assyrians. And the Assyrians are, the wicked, are some of the wicked enemies of the Israelites. The Lord tells Jonah to get up and go and preach to his enemy. Jonah gets up and goes and literally goes in the opposite direction. He attempts to, fr uh, to flee from the Lord and his commands and wisdom. He gets on a boat at the port city of Joppa, hides at the bottom of that boat in hopes of getting away. The Lord causes a great storm to come and threaten the sinking of the ship. It gets exposed to the ship and everyone on it. That This storm is, is a result of Jonah's disobedience. Jonah, the one who says he worships the creator God who made the heavens and the sea and the dry land, tells the sailors, throw me overboard. And as a result, you will be saved and the ship will be saved. They reluctantly do just that. The storm ceases, and then we read in verse 17 of chapter 1, the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Now, if it ended there, that would be a really sad and kind of pointless story in Scripture. But God's grace continues to be evident past chapter 1. Not only in chapter 1, but past it, the Lord, the story continues. The scene moves from being a, on a ship in the midst of a storm to now being in the belly of a fish. As God's people, we take this story by faith. 
We believe we worship a supernatural God where nothing is beyond his control or his, his creativity, his power. Otherwise, he's not worthy of worship. Otherwise, we shouldn't stand and sing these songs. Otherwise, we shouldn't pray if we really don't expect or anticipate that he can change things in our lives or change circumstances around us, let alone our own hearts. If the Son of Man can die on a cross, be buried in a tomb, be guarded by the best of the best soldiers on the planet, and yet come back to life, roll that, tomb, roll that stone away, and then be seen in a resurrected body by hundreds of witnesses, our God can do anything. If he can speak and the heavens and the stars and the, and the water and, and the land gets spoken into existence with simply his word, we believe that nothing is impossible with him including swallowing up a prophet that is running from the Lord. And here's what we must see as we look at this story. The fish, it's evidence of God's grace. The fish is evidence that God pursues those he loves, that he will use whatever means possible to bring someone back from their rebellion and sin. He's not getting Jonah back for his sin in this. He's getting Jonah back from his sin. The fish swallowing up Jonah was appointed by the Lord to occur. This is not an accident. This is not some random fish story. This is all part of God's sovereign plan to bring Jonah back and work both in Jonah and in the people of Nineveh. And then also to use this story to both reveal a reoccurring storyline in the Old Testament and to point us forward to the coming Messiah and to teach and encourage us as God's people in present day. Because most of us, if not all of us, have found ourselves in the belly of a fish before. Not literally like Jonah, but figuratively for sure. And we have found ourselves in that spot for the same reasons that Jonah has, because of our own sin. It says, Jonah was in the belly of a fish three days and three nights. Now, growing up as a kid, I thought of Pinocchio anytime I read this story. Remember this picture? Growing up, this was the idea of being in the belly of a fish, and it was the size of a great room, if not a house. I mean, he's moving in furniture, he's hanging clothes up to dry, he's writing, he has a wood stove in the corner, right? Room to stand, room to walk, room to move about. I don't think this was the case. We don't know for sure from the account of Scripture. We know these facts. He's in the belly of a fish, and he's been there three days and three nights. So it would be safe to say these things about Jonah's situation. It stinks. It smells. It smells bad. Half-eaten, rotting fish all around him. Enjoy your lunch. You're welcome. How many of you love seafood? Raise your hand if you love seafood. Like, whatever, if it, if it swam... If it floated, you want to eat it with salt and butter, okay? Delicious. How many of you hate seafood? Like, you can keep your surf, I'll, I'll take the turf, okay? Right. Either way, I don't care if you love seafood or you hate seafood, none of us want to be there. None of us want to be in the belly of a fish where Jonah is because it stinks. We also know it's dark. Jonah did not snag a candle or a wood stove or this lamp before he said, hey, before you throw me off the boat, can you uh, uh, gather up some lighting accessories that I can use in the fish? 
No, he just throw, throws me overboard. That's all he has. Okay, so it's dark. And it's a confined, cramped space. So there's not room to move in the desk. There's not room to move about and stroll. There's a sense of being trapped because Jonah is no MacGyver here. He's not getting out of this fish until vomit happens in verse 10. This is vomit in Scripture should make junior hires here laugh and should like, hey, see, vomit shows up, all right? And yet, despite those circumstances, the Lord is giving life to Jonah and not going to let his story or the story of what the Lord is doing end in the fish. The Lord will be faithful to both be present with him in the belly and faithful to bring him through the belly. Jonah's in a smelly, dark, and tight space. And what has led him there is not his obedience to the Lord, but his disobedience. And like I said, we probably all found ourselves there before in that kind of spot. The addiction to alcohol or some other substance eventually comes to a head and you find yourself in jail, maybe without a job, maybe without a license, a home, or a marriage. The bitterness or anger in your heart towards a person or people has eventually resulted in you pushing everyone away and now you're in this place of isolation that stinks. You've gotten entangled in an emotional or physical affair. The Lord has exposed that to the light, and now you're trying to figure out how to recover from a place that you never thought you'd be, a place that seems dark and confined. Or maybe you're single, and you're continuing to try to date according to your ways and your wisdom and what the people around you tell you to do, and it keeps leading to a place that is not life-giving. It keeps leading to a place that smells and looks and feels like the belly. There are a myriad of ways that our own sin can lead to places that feel and smell like the belly of a fish. How our own sin can lead to a dark night of a soul, if you will. Where our own soul, our own spirit is downcast. Sometimes it's not the sin of ourselves that take us to this place, but the sin of others, those around us. The pride of a child can lead parents to this place. Your spouse has had an affair and now you're in the belly as well, wondering where do we go from here? The sin of a leader or a boss can lead you to a place of not having a job, being demoted, a place where you might feel trapped. The story of Joseph in the book of Genesis is an example of the sin of others affecting another person's life. His brothers want him dead, throw him in the pit, then sell him off to slavery. One thing happens after another, after another in Joseph's life. The sin of others continues to kind of put him into a dark night. And yet you can go read Genesis 50, verse 20 this, this, uh, this week and see how the Lord was faithful and sovereign in all of that. See, sometimes it's not our own sin or the sin of others, but some, something has occurred in the circumstances of, of your life. Maybe you can't pinpoint the season or the reason why you're there, but you would describe that in a moment of honesty, you would feel like you're in the belly of a fish. Loss of a loved one, disease of your own body, someone you love, job loss, financial stress, and you're thinking, this stinks right now. It's smelly, it seems dark, the light seems to be escaping, and I feel just kind of pressed in, in life. What do we do? What did Jonah do when faced with this situation? 
Verse 1, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of a fish. And what gets recorded then in chapter 2 is Jonah's prayer. And maybe that sounds like this Sunday school answer of, well, you're in a season or a place that feels like the belly of a fish, so you should pray. Like that could really come off as some trite, cheap Christian advice. And yet we shouldn't overcomplicate the faith when it's unnecessary to do so. Christians notoriously want to overcomplicate something that is never intended to be overcomplicated. Too often we are prone to skip over what is most basic and look for some uh, maybe elaborate but a temporary quick fix. When what the Lord is wanting to do in us is teach us to pray in the midst of being in the belly of a fish, to call out to Him, to grow in our devotion, our dependence upon Him. What we do see in this chapter is an honest prayer of a man who has been running from the Lord, a man who has tried to flee instead of follow the Lord, a man who has tried to live by his own rules, his own wisdom, way of life, and even though he has been running, the Lord has been gracious to him, gracious enough to pursue him and bring him back in the most unlikeliest of ways. Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of a fish. So what does prayer look like when you're in the belly? On your program, it says prayer in the body. That is because my handwriting is so terrible that Bree Herman thought I I wrote body instead of belly. So I apologize, Bree. If you get a a note from me, I feel like I need to have a business card written up that just puts in there saying, sorry for the handwriting. Uh, If you have any questions, email this person. I just feel like it. So it's prayer in the belly. What does prayer in the belly look like? What does it speak? What does it declare? I want to read all of Jonah's prayer, and I want to talk about four things that he confesses in this prayer. Four things that no matter if you're literally in the belly of a fish or you're figuratively there, that we're called to pray. And I pray that that would stir up in us a growing desire to pray and grow in that as God's people today. Verse 2, I called to the Lord in my distress, and he answered me. I cried out for help from deep inside Sheol. You heard my voice. You threw me into the depths, into the heart of the seas, and the current overcame me. All your breakers and your billows swept over me, but I said, I have been banished from your sight, yet I will look once more toward your holy temple. The water engulfed me up to the neck. The watery depths overcame me. Seaweed was wrapped around my head. I sank to the foundation of the, of the mountains, the earth's gates shut behind me forever. Then you raised my life from the pit, Lord my God. As my life was fading away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you, to your holy temple. Those who cherish worthless idols abandon their faithful love. But as for me, I will sacrifice to you with a voice of thanksgiving. I will fulfill what I have vowed. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Then the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. Overall, what you sense from Jonah's prayer here is that repentance is taking place in his heart and life. Now, we will get to chapters 3 and 4 in the next two weeks and find out that repentance in chapter 2 doesn't lead to perfection in chapters 3 and 4. We should never be so naive or spiritually proud to think that the Christian life is one where we repent once in salvation and then never again because we're good. Repentance is the ongoing posture of a Christ follower. 
So in this prayer, we learn some things about repentance and how to pray in the midst of the belly. And I want to draw our attention to four confessions that Jonah is making here. Two confessions that are oriented toward this examination of himself, this inward view. It's that memory verse that we talked about uh, for the month of September here, Psalm 139, 23 and 24. It's that attitude, this inward examining view. And then two confessions that are oriented about the truth and the goodness of God, his character, an upward looking view. Prayer in the belly is never just one or the other. It's always both. This inward view and yet also an upward view toward the Lord and His good news. So we'll look at these four confessions and we'll kind of go back and forth between these inward and upward that we hold in tension in prayer. We don't ignore one or the other, but we do them both. First of all, Jonah is confessing the futility of life without God. Jonah is in a place of hopelessness. Look at verse 5. The waters engulfed me up to the neck. The watery depths overcame me. Seaweed was wrapped around my head, and Jonah was tossed into the storm, and this is what he was experiencing. When the Lord commanded Jonah to get up and go to Nineveh, and he ran, he was running toward his goal of living life apart from the Lord, living life apart from his word, his authority, his direction, his loving ways. But in the belly, Jonah has become fully aware that life without God is meaningless. That's how Solomon, the writer of Ecclesiastes, puts it. Life is pointless, it's in vain, lacks meaning purpose when it's lived apart from the Lord. That's where Jonah's at. Listen to some of those phrases. I sank to the foundations of the mountains. My life was fading away. There's a sense of despair in Jonah's words. When Jonah was going down into Joppa and down into the boat and running, he thought he was running toward life. He thought that's where life was found. But now he's become aware that he was actually running from the life the Lord had called him to live. He was actually running toward death and destruction. There's this brokenness in his words that should be reflective of our words when we are in the midst of a belly. Jonah's not looking for the Lord to get him out of a jam. He's not trying to manipulate the Lord and say, hey, listen, can, can you kind of get me out of this? And once I'm out of it, can we just kind of forget this ever occurred? Jonah is aware at the end of the day that he has sinned against his God, against the one who created the heavens and the sea and the dry land, a God who he told the sailors in chapter 1 that he worshiped. When we're in the belly, especially when, we're, when we are there as a result of our own sin, we should not settle for a worldly sorrow. A worldly sorrow is just upset that you're in a spot that is smelly, hot, dark, and confined. A godly sorrow is deeper than that and understands that our sin is against the Lord. A godly sorrow confesses that life apart from the Lord is meaningless. A life that is lived apart from God's word, isn't the abundant life that he has called and designed us to live. Are you there? If you find yourself in the belly this morning, are you using that as a God-given opportunity to confess pride and self-reliance and self-centeredness? But Jonah's prayer doesn't end there. 
we see another thread through these nine verses, and that is Jonah's confessing the goodness of God. Listen to verse 2. I called to the Lord in my distress, and he answered me. I cried out for help from deep inside Sheol, meaning the grave. So I called out from the grave, and you heard my voice. What about verse 6? I sank to the foundations of the mountains, the earth's gates shut behind me forever. Then you raised my life from the pit, Lord my God. What about verse 7? As my life was fading away, I remember the Lord, and my prayer came to you, to your holy temple. Again, Lord, you heard me. You were present. When I thought I had been forsaken, I hadn't been. It's the goodness of God that we need to be confessing when we're in the midst of the belly. See, it's tempting to believe that when you're in the belly, that the Lord is not listening because your circumstances aren't changing. Jonah, rather, is saying, no, no God is close to me. When, I might, when I'm feeling pressed in right now, the Lord is present. He's aware of the Lord's presence, even though the situation hasn't changed. In my own life experience, what I've found is that when I've been in that situation, often as a result of my own sin and actions, that that's where I'm brought closest to the Lord. I have friends who would say the exact same thing. None of us would choose the actions that led us to the place of the belly. We'd never say, I'd like to do that again. But we would say that the Lord has been so gracious to them in the midst of it. That their relationship with the Lord is deeper, more intimate, closer as a result of being in the belly. That they're more aware of the goodness of God, and as a result, they don't want to return to what led them there, to that situation. But they're more intimately aware of the goodness of God as a result of going through the belly. Jonah is celebrating deliverance while he's still in the fish. Do you see that? Do you see the order here? Verse 6, you raised my life from the pit. He's still in the pit, though. Hardship hasn't ended. He's still in the middle of, middle of it. Vomit occurs in verse 10. He's thanking God for deliverance in verse 6. In a place that, that seems hopeless. The Lord was beginning his greatest work in Jonah's heart and life. Not only in revealing the futility of life when we try to live it apart from him, but revealing the very goodness and grace of our God who is present and listening. So then you see Jonah get pretty specific about two of his confessions. The futility of life apart from the Lord is evidenced in the emptiness of idols. We see Jonah confess that. Listen to verse 8. Those who cherish worthless idols abandon their faithful love. I think it's safe to say that Jonah's not referring just to the pagan sailors who were calling out to any idol they could find in chapter 1 to try to get this storm to stop. But he's also talking about his own heart. And one thing the Lord is seeking to reveal to your heart when you're in the belly is the emptiness, the meaninglessness of idols. An idol is something you love or worship more than God. The English word for worship comes from the meaning of worth-ship. So when something has more worth in your life that you can't imagine living without it, you've got yourself an idol. When something has such value in your life 
that if you lost it, if you had to go without it, then the joy of life just wouldn't be the same. Then you've got yourself an idol. John Calvin said the human heart is like a factory for, human, for, for idols. We can just kind of churn them out. What are you envious of others for? I think this is the, the best question, is where or to who do you run to when life gets hard? What's the habit? What's the situation? What, what, what do you run to for refuge when life begins to press you in? Is it mind-numbing uh, TV streaming? Is it social media? Is it an addiction? Is it, let's go, let's go shop and let's go buy something? See, this is how idols get exposed in us. When life begins to press you in, where do you and I run to for our so-called refuge? When you're in the belly, idols get exposed because oftentimes the idols are what led us to that situation in the first place. This is the story of the Old Testament Israelites. The Lord called them to worship him. They notoriously turned to idolatry as a result, gold, golden calf. And because of their sin, then they face consequences, judgment for it, Babylon eventually comes in, and yet the Lord will show grace to them and bring a remnant through that Babylonian exile and through the judgment. A remnant will continue so that one day the son of David, Jesus Christ, will come as the Messiah. The Lord will be gracious through them, through that process. That overarching story is one that we see happening here in Jonah. Called to obey, turns toward the idol of self, and runs, faces the consequences, judgment, swallowed up by fish, and yet God will be gracious to him to bring him through. Idols always and forever lie. They promise pleasure, rest, delight, joy, satisfaction, popularity, and all those promises return empty every single time. Jonah's realizing that here. Getting what he thought he wanted actually didn't bring him life. It led to a place of being, uh, feeling drowned and trapped, seaweed around him, feeling stuck. And what Jonah's praying here is that when we cherish the idol, we abandon or forsake the steadfast love and grace that is ours in a relationship with Christ. We exchange the truth of love, grace, forgiveness, life. We exchange that for the lie that the idol gives us. Cross point. We need to be a people who do not abandon the faithful love of the Lord. And we see that as far superior than what any lie an idol could give to us. If we find ourselves there today, let's turn back. Let's confess the emptiness of idols. And let's together confess that salvation belongs to the Lord. And that's where Jonah lands in this prayer. The goodness of God is most clearly evidenced in that salvation belongs to the Lord. Salvation in Jonah's case, being vomited out, hasn't occurred. But he is confident it will because he knows his God is good. And notice who Jonah ascribes salvation to. The Lord. Jonah's salvation from the belly isn't found in Jonah's ability, ability to get out of the fish. He's not in the belly going, you know, forget this. I'm just going to get out of here. Well, there's no way out of that in his own strength. He's there.
The only way out for Jonah is not for him to work his way out, it's for him to surrender. And that's the heart of the gospel. The Lord's work, our surrender. It's through faith alone, by grace alone, in Christ alone. It's we believe in his work and what he has accomplished, and we believe, and as a result, we repent and begin to walk in a new way. See, there are three kinds of people in life. There are those who say they're not the least bit religious, and they would say, I don't need to be saved. I don't need salvation. I don't need to be saved from anything or for, for anything. I don't need to be saved. Then there are also those who would say they are deeply religious. We go to church. We pray before meals. We dress a certain way. We avoid these taboo things. When we, when we sin, we keep it quiet over here because we can't let anybody see it. We do all the religious activity. We give, we serve, and yet the religious people would say that salvation belongs to them. Do you see all the things I'm doing? So I'm earning this. I'm obtaining this. I'm getting closer and closer to the ability to be saved because I'm working for it. So there are those who, I don't need salvation. There are those who say, I'm earning salvation. And then there are gospel people who understand that salvation belongs to the Lord. And as a result, he is most worthy of our worth-ship. That even when we're in the belly, especially when we're there, we preach the good news to ourselves that says salvation belongs to the Lord, so I will confess and trust in that truth. If the worship team could come up. I'm not sure where this passage and message lands on your heart and life. Maybe you're in the belly today, maybe not. Maybe you will be, maybe you have been. Maybe you're there as a result of your own sin, the sin of others, or just living in a fallen, broken world. No matter what and where you are, we can take from Jonah's prayer this posture of surrender. Have you surrendered? Not just, if, not just at your salvation, your conversion, but are you walking in a posture of surrender? Hands up, palms open. I pray that we would be gospel people who readily and freely and joyfully confess the futility of life if we try to live it apart from the Lord, the goodness and holiness of our God, the emptiness of idols and their constant language of lies and that salvation belongs to the Lord. Maybe the time in the belly actually ends up being the best thing for your soul. Maybe it moves us to a place of repentance, faith, and understanding the goodness of God that we never would have gotten without it. Maybe it moves us to a place of humility and dependence where our worship is no longer misplaced, where the idol no longer has a hold on us. Maybe it anchors us to the truth that salvation is not something we can ignore or dismiss, nor something that we earn. It's something that's been given to us. It belongs to the Lord. And that leads to our joy. Father God, I pray that you would minister to our hearts this morning, that we would be a people who would have this, this inward view 
as we pray that we would confess and ask you to search us and know us and test us so that you would lead us in an everlasting way. There are thousands of idols we can turn to. So Spirit, I pray that you just be speaking that and encouraging those of us as individuals here today about maybe the idols that we have turned to, the lies that we have potentially believed. And I pray that as a people, we would also have this upward view of prayer that we would be confessing the goodness of our God, that you're a good father, that you are for us, and that we would be a people confessing that salvation belongs to you and you alone. May that lead to our joy. May that lead to our strength in you. So draw us close to you, Lord. Thank you that you're present, that you're listening, that you're here, that you're powerful. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand up and worship. I want to read some of Psalm 40. I encourage you to read all of it this week and just to spend time meditating on it. I waited patiently for the Lord, and he turned to me and heard my cry for help. He brought me up from a desolate pit out of the muddy clay and set my feet on a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a hymn of praise to our God. Many will see and fear, and they will trust in the Lord. How happy is anyone who has put his trust in the Lord and has not turned to the proud or to those who run after lies. Lord, my God, you have done many things, your wondrous works, your plans for us. None can compare with you. If I were to report and speak of them, they are more than can be told. I proclaim righteousness in the great assembly. See, I do not keep my mouth closed, as you know, Lord. I did not hide your righteousness in my heart. I spoke about your faithfulness and salvation. I did not conceal your constant love and truth from the great assembly. Lord, you do not withhold your compassion from me. Your constant love and truth will always guard me. For troubles without number have surrounded me. My iniquities have overtaken me. I'm unable to see. They are more than the hairs of my head, and my courage leaves me. Lord, be pleased to rescue me. Hurry to help me, Lord. Let all who seek your, you rejoice and be glad in you. Let those who love your salvation continually say, The Lord is great. I am oppressed and needy. May the Lord think of me. You are my helper, my deliverer, my God. Do not delay. May we not withhold speaking of his faithfulness and his righteousness. And may as a result, many come to know the Lord and trust in him. See you back next Sunday. God bless.